Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This week I am doing something a little special. I've been feeling a tad overwhelmed with life recently, so I asked one of my longtime listeners and friend, Dan Jones, to guest host this week's episode. Dan is a scholar in religious studies, media studies, communication, nature studies, and more. He is constantly suggesting new books to me and puts his reading interests to great use as a book review editor at the journal Religious Studies Review. Dan's guest this week is Dr. Amy Artman from Missouri State University, and I am going to turn it over to him to introduce himself a bit more and this week's guest, Dr. Amy Artman. As always, thanks for listening. It's been said that the history of religion in America is also the history of media in America. During the 20th century, as radio gave way to television, new relationships between religious figures and audiences developed. Coinciding with this development was the emergence of so-called charismatic Christianity, a movement defined largely by the centripetal force that it had on expressions of Christianity that were once on the periphery. The transformation of charismatic Christianity from itself being on the periphery to the center of American popular culture made much use of this development of media cultures. Once America's best-known female preacher, Catherine Kuhlman has largely been forgotten. Her impact on the American religious landscape, as well as media culture and the development of charismatic Christianity itself, is being rethought by Dr. Amy Artman. Her new book, The Miracle Lady, Catherine Kuhlman and the Transformation of Charismatic Christianity, explores her media strategy, her rhetorical prowess, and the unorthodox figure that she was that came to prominence. Dr. Artman received her PhD from the University of Chicago in American Religious History and now teaches at Missouri State University. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Amy Arden. I did my PhD work at the University of Chicago, and I studied um, with the wonderful Catherine Breckis, who was generous enough, even though she's her area of expertise is, is colonial religion in America, of course she can do anything, and when I came along and wanted to study modern American Christianity, um, she said, that's fine, I'll, I'd be glad to be your advisor. And so we worked together on this. Um, she was a, a great influence. And that's, so that's where I did my PhD work. I have a Master of Divinity, mm-hmm. actually. So I did my Master of Divinity at Texas Christian University and then came into the PhD program at the University of Chicago. But now I, um, I, I get to teach at... Uh, Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, which is actually where I did my undergrad degree in religious studies. Mm-hmm. And back when it was Southwest Missouri State University, <laughs> Missouri State University. Mm-hmm. I could, you know, I was, um, I had the chance to change my diploma and I decided not to because now it was SMS when I went there. So I'll keep it SMS. And I, my area of expertise, if you want to call it that, or that where I get excited about things and jazzed about things is definitely 
modern American Christianity, probably mainly the mid 20th century, but I like the whole 20th and into the 21st century. And I'm pretty fascinated with the 1970s and particularly I have interest in what, what you would call Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity, or you might call it spirit filled Christianity or enthusiastic Christianity. There's, there's, it's kind of a mushy what group of people to turn, to come to a term that works for all of them. Mm. But I like the, um, the type of Christianity that has an strong emotional component um and that has this idea of the the living reality of the gifts of the spirit that you find listed in the christian new testament so it's, i spend time with um studying pentecostals charismatics and primarily in the groovy 70s so groovy people in the groovy era <laughs> so i a, a good portion of your studies have really been surrounded by the Midwest, both, uh, you know, as now researching as a professor and also as a student. Uh, and you and I share that. I did my graduate work at MSU. Yay! So, <laughs> uh, go Bears. Um, yes. <laughs> but I, and, and I am, you know, it's a very uh, storied department. It's one of the largest in the Midwest. And yeah. um, it has a fantastic pool of resources for folks who want to study women in Christianity. That's actually what originally drew me there. And then my research interests um, sort of took one of those unexpected uh, turns and you go, oh, yes. did I find myself yeah. here, you know, um, but it's a fascinating place to study religion and especially religion and gender and religion and media. If you would give us a frame of how you came to um, uh, define charismatic Christianity. How does that fit within this larger development? Because emotion is uh, sort of a, a, a big signifier in American religious discourse, uh, a form of capital, if you will. And um, so it, could you tease that out a little bit and how that works into the book? Yes, this was a major point of discernment for me when I first began working on this topic, because I come, it's, I come from an area a little south of um, Springfield, Missouri, down in the northern part of Arkansas, and that's actually where I still live. And it's this interesting transition period, transition area where are you Southern or are you Midwestern? Are you, and it's really this Ozark culture, this hillbilly and I can say that because I'm from here, this hillbilly <laughs> culture <laughs> that, 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 that you're trying to discern. And Coleman grows up in um, Concordia, Missouri, which is a little, which is a north, about two hours, I want to say, north of Springfield. So she's kind of in this interesting place as well, although she's probably more kind of straight ahead Midwestern. And uh, when I grew up in, in my religious environment, you had... Pentecostal churches and the Pentecostal churches were clearly the ones that were more kind of enthusiastic, more that, that the emotion was more um, pronounced in those types of churches. And, and that we just, everybody knew that um, holy rollers is what they were, is what they were called for a long time. And 
So for me, I came into graduate work and I think, well, everybody knows this and everybody knows what I mean when I say um, emotional Christian. But mm-hmm. then I began to get good pushback on this and, and people who began to say, now, wait a minute, trance can be profoundly emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, meditation and silence can be profoundly emotional. So you can't just say emotional because what do you mean? It, do you mean jumping up and down emotion or do you mean a quietness that is very emotional? So, okay, well, emotional is not going to work. Enthusiastic is another term, but I was, like I said, I'm working with a colonial expert and to call someone enthusiastic in the 1700s and into the 1800s was a, was not a positive thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that meant you were kind of wacko, kind of crazy. And so, okay, well that, that term has baggage to it. So, I don't know that I ever came to a completely satisfactory definition. I just got to the point where you get to at some point where you say, okay, I'm defining these terms mm-hmm. and for the sake of this book and for the sake of my work, what I mean when I say charismatic is a, a Christian who is associated with a form of Christianity that emphasizes the gifts of the spirit as we find in the Christian New Testament, particularly um, and are particularly known for things like speaking in tongues, um, divine healing, prophecy, those types of what they would call manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, help me out. Redirect no, me. I, I, I really appreciate that because I, I've done a handful of book reviews recently where the sort of assumption of evangelicalism or uh, Pentecostalism was sort of self-evident in, in the the way that the authors had framed it. And you were pretty clear from the beginning, and I think throughout the book, that you aren't assuming that. You're saying, this is what I mean. This is where I'm going. This is the um, the veins of religious discourse that I'm addressing and the, you know, the veins of social movements in a, American Christianity that I'm dealing with. Um, you know, I, you, you talk about... Um, Coleman never really leaving her Baptist heritage and Baptists and charismatic and Pentecostal, not, you know, not to conflate the two, but uh, they've had a strenuous relationship with the polity of their churches. And you do a fantastic job of um, demonstrating how she navigates these things. Now, I think there is sort of a, uh, a popular assumption that, emotional, charismatic type of um, expressions of Christianity is sort of anti-modern. Yeah. And which is all the more fascinating that Coleman uses these developing, you know, cutting edge technologies. You know, at one point you talk about like the microphone hanging around her neck. And, how, <laughs> you know, this, this is like a big thing then. Um, and so there is this seemingly contradictory um uh like symbolic expressions that coexist and that to me uh was 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 incredibly fascinating Mm -hmm. Uh, so if if you could uh like explain how those two things that are seemingly contradictory how that sort of defines um because correct me if i'm wrong but it almost seems like you're saying like, this is what sort of starts to define charismatic Christianity, these, um, these paradoxes. Mm -hmm. 
let me start with this, this distinguishing of charismatic and Pentecostal. Maybe I, maybe I could start there. Where what, what happens over the, the 20th century is at the beginning of the 20th century, to be a Pentecostal is, is to be really on the fringes of American Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really kind of out there. Uh, the, the speaking in tongues, the ecstatic worship. Oh, that's another word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all going to come up because mm-hmm. I, I, I tried them all. The ecstatic worship um, and also uh, a, worship, a form of worship that you find in Pentecostalism in the early 20th century that is breaking down um, gender barriers. So women are, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are speaking and, and teaching and preaching in these services. It's breaking down racial barriers. You have, um, you have people of all different color, people of all different races who are um, leading in these, in these meetings. And they are um, what are called promiscuous meetings at the time, <laughs> which meant, oh my goodness, men and women are um, passing out. And I mean, the critics said are passing out and rolling around on the floor together. Of course, that's a very negative image. <laughs> what we know is what's happening there is this overwhelming by the Holy Spirit is what they claimed. And that you have black and white people, men and women, black women, white men who are in these, these uh, meetings together having this experience that in America really doesn't start to take off until between 1900 and 1906 is when Pentecostalism really gets going. And of course that name comes from the account in the book of Acts in the new Testament, where you have um, the disciples who are in the upper room. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected and ascended and, you, Jesus says, go and wait for me. And what happens then in that story in Acts is that the Holy Spirit comes and, and places and is then distributed amongst all the people who are there at that meeting. And they talk about tongues of fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're given the um, miraculous ability to speak in other languages. So that's, that's the text that Pentecostal look, looks back to. But all, and that is all then comes together to make this a very suspect form of religion for really the first third of the 20th century. Then after World War II, you have rising um, economic, you have, you have people who are, who used to be kind of poor working class or urban farmers, that type of thing, who were Pentecostal, who are still Pentecostal, but they're making more money, they're rising in class, and there also begins to be a more, um, you used a really good word. It's centrifugal is the one that is pulling you in, right? And yeah. Centrifugal whole, I always have trouble with centrifugal yeah. and centrifugal. Anyway, you start to have a bunch of people organizing. Mm-hmm. And the National Evangelical Association starts to form and come together in the 40s and 50s. And you start to have Pentecostals identifying more and more with what, this evangelical group. Mm-hmm. So what basically happens is that Pentecostals kind of, they're moving on up. They're, they're, they're rising in, in class and economic distinction. And mm. Grant Wacker does an incredible job on all of this. So then you start having mainline Protestant folks start to get interested in this way of being Christian, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily want to speak in tongues or, um, identify completely with all that it means to be Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. And out of that interesting kind of morass that starts to happen of mainline Catholic 
evangelical Pentecostal coming together emerges what again what comes to be called charismatic Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's distinct from Pentecostalism in the sense that you there's not the requirement for the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. You don't have to speak in tongues to be charismatic. Um, there's a strong emphasis on divine healing and those types of things. And there begins to be controversy. There was an ongoing criticism of Catherine Kuhlman that she was kind of like, I don't know, like if you have diet Coke and Coke, like she was diet Pentecostalism. <laughs> yeah, she was Pentecostalism light, L-I-T-E. <laughs> and she was kind of leading people to take on these gifts of the spirit, but without really committing to this, this Pentecostal belief. Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's that, that tension there for her. And she's this figure, to get to your second question, um, who has no problem using whatever she needs to use to get the message out about what she believes is the truth of the salvation of the world, which is mm-hmm. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So she's, she's like, whatever it takes. Well, that, that draws strongly, as you're saying, from she has a Baptist dad and a Methodist mother, but she really identifies with her dad. And she draws from this Baptist background and she has her papers as they call them. Mm -hmm. Um, She wasn't really ordained exactly, but she has her papers from a Baptist organization. And out of that evangelical background, she sides with the people who throughout evangelicalism in the 20th and 19th centuries are basically saying, if there's something that comes along and we can use it, to more effectively communicate the gospel and the gospel being um, the good news of Jesus is Christ and believe in him and be saved. If we can use that to communicate the gospel, then we should. Mm-hmm. Um, and if God has given us, you know, first of all, it was, it was newspapers and journals and debates and those types of things. Then it gets to be radio and she's huge in radio and, and does radio her entire life. And then, of course, we come along and we have um, kind of the concert setting and the sense of being in these large auditoriums. And then you've got TV. Mm-hmm. And, okay. Um, there's a quote that I have where it says that um, this brand, and there are evangelicals who don't like this. And you're saying, no, 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 no. Um, this is bad. We don't want to be worldly. And there are Pentecostals who also say this, this is too worldly. Um, the theater or the TV is kind of like having a theater in your home. And mm-hmm. that's, you don't want to go to theater because that's all make believe and false. And, but she, so then she's with the, the, the strand of evangelicals who are along with, I can't remember who it is that says this, but he says that, Oh, it's true that with the television, <clears throat> every home becomes a theater, but it's also the case that every parlor can become a church or something like that. Yeah. Something like through the use of media, we have access to men and women that we wouldn't have before. So why on earth wouldn't we use it? She's that type. Yeah. Um, which is, I, I don't want to say it's an understudied uh, rhetorical trope in evangelicalism, but it's, it's in what we call evangelicalism, but it's definitely much more prominent than I've engaged in the scholarship. And I would love to see more people talk about this idea of uh, spatiality in analyzing American Christianities. 
And um, I, I, I would go so far as to say, though, and you touch on this, that the story of uh, Christianity in America or religion in America, not to conflate the two, but mm-hmm. it's also the story of uh, media in America, right. religion in America. And it, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the, the, the possibilities that are, that, that, that are offered to social movements because of the media that they use or refuse to use. Taking a step back, you use the term gentrification. You operationalize yeah. that in the book. And I could feel this coming. I was like, oh, get ready. Get ready to talk about gentrification. If you, if you wouldn't mind, like, give us an idea of how you frame gentrification, how that operates in the book and in your uh, historical analysis. Okay. Okay. And I'm, I don't know. I may, I may circle back around and, and ask you what you're, or I may, what, once I kind of talk it through a little bit, maybe I'd be interested to know what, what made you kind of the hair on your back, your neck stand up a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get, I've gotten that. That's the, I've gotten that from, from several folks and I expected it. It's an intentionally provocative term. Mm-hmm. I even say that in the book. I say, you know, I, I think I say those exact words. <laughs> it's a provocative word. But so, okay. I was living in Chicago at the time. Um, so I'm, I'm in Chicago at the time and we live on kind of the far North side in an area that, and I don't get into all the Chicago details. Uh, it's an area called Ravenswood mm-hmm. and it was definitely gentrifying. Um, it, there was a um, Magic Johnson for a while, I don't know if he's still doing this, was putting in Starbucks coffee shops in um, areas that were struggling to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And so you basically say, oh, well, there's a Magic Johnson Starbucks. That's it. You know, it's the, the neighborhood's going to change. And, and here goes the neighborhood, if you're the person who's living there. So I kind of tried to use that imagery for the conversation about Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity and also charismatic, okay, Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity, little c, and charismatic Christianity, big c, and religion in public in general. So now let me back up and say what I mean by all of that. Um, Like I said, there's already this tension between Pentecostal Christianity which finds, which roots itself in this early 20th century movement. And so you get to the 1940s, 1950s, and you start to have a group emerge that is not drawn from these historical Pentecostal churches. And they're uncomfortable to a certain degree being associated with the historical Pentecostal churches, like Assemblies of God. Mm -hmm. Um, Church of God in Christ would be one of the African-American churches. And they want to be Lutheran, for instance, but they want to be a Holy Spirit Lutheran. And that group then begins to, that group of little C characters, anyway, that group begins to come together. And it's really the editors of um, a journal, Trinity Journal, there's your media again and your rhetoric, who begin to use the term charismatic. And they're using it intentionally to counteract another term that had gotten started to describe these these types of Holy Spirit Christians who weren't deriving from um, historical Pentecostalism, and they were calling them Mm neo-Pentecostals. Well, they didn't want to be called new Pentecostals. 
they wanted, they didn't want to be associated with this, what they still felt like you were saying was this lower class, um, not very intelligent, mm-hmm. um, less educated group of people as they saw them. So that's one of the, that's one of the ways that, that I was like, so, so I look at that, it's like, what's happening there? Well, the, it's gentrification. It's, if you, if you say that we have these theological neighborhoods and Pentecostalism lives in this Pentecostal, lives in this Pentecostal neighborhood um, where there's the belief in the Holy Spirit and the belief in the gifts of the Spirit. And that's what charismatic means. It just, charism is just gift. Mm-hmm. So Pentecostals are charismatic Christians, little c. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a particular kind of charismatic Christian. So now you have Lutheran charismatics who don't want to be associated with Pentecostal charismatics. <laughs> Your audience is probably like, what? <clears throat> so the point of this being that that's the term I thought, okay, so you have new people moving into this neighborhood and you have the Pentecostals who are saying, wait a minute, <laughs> this is our neighborhood. Yeah. You're, you're building these new structures, theological structures in our part of the city and you're changing things. And you're not authentic and you're not, you're not who, you're not what it really means to be a charismatic person. Mm -hmm. So that's one conversation that's going on that I thought, okay, that's interesting. But then you also have the larger culture who, who has looked on charismatic Christianity and said, like I was talking about with these are, you know, gosh, there's all kinds of names, Mm -hmm. pew jumpers, holy ghosts or holy rollers, Jesus freaks. Um, a very, very wanting to keep this, this group of Christians at the margins. And what Kuhlman does is she comes along and through her media, through her books, through her radio, through, and particularly through her television show, I believe in miracles. Mm -hmm. She begins to present images of people who look surprisingly normal, Mm -hmm. who are sitting across from her and having a conversation with her just like this. Well, hello, Nancy Sue, Kuhlman says, um, tell me about yourself. And Nancy Sue says, oh my goodness, Miss Kuhlman, I want to tell you what you've done for me and what God has done for me. Then Nancy Sue begins, proceeds to tell a story about being divinely healed, uh, being slain in the spirit. So basically it looks like she's passed out, going to a Kuhlman service going to a Kuhlman um, maybe Bible study, reading Kuhlman's books. And, but this isn't some wild eyed sweat soaked backwoods preacher. Mm-hmm. This is, well, I can't remember what her name is now. Nancy Sue, who looks just like your neighbor. Oh yeah. And I was, and I was watching this like, what's happening here? And again, the word I could come up with is like, this is gentrification. This is, groups that normally would not want to be associated with this way of being Christian are being presented then as, well, well, look, these people look like you. They sound like you. They act like you. Um, this is nothing to be intimidated by or scared of. So now I'm going to knock it back to you and see if you can. Yeah, no, I back in. <laughs> I, I think theological neighborhood is one of my new favorite terms. Um, I, I, I like thinking spatially and I, I love yeah. what you do with that. Um, uh, I think that's a fantastic way of thinking about it. And there are issues of uh, race and class that are 
that do clash here and, and you mm-hmm. do that in the book and, um, and I, I don't do justice to race. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't, if I were going to go, if I were going to go back and do this book again, mm-hmm. I would spend more time exploring that because Coleman is also a really interesting figure. She, her, her services are integrated in so far that as far as you have pictures of her 1950 services in, um, uh, in Pittsburgh and, and they show pictures of the gathered group and there are black and white people sitting together. Now there are, there are not very many, there are not very many African-American people, but the ones who are there, there's mixed seating, which was not necessarily the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's a sense of, um, of this being a community. She has interviews with people of color on her television show, but, but she's never an advocate necessarily for that. So anyway, I want to go back to what you were saying, but I do want to say, I I, I really feel the need to say that, especially in 2019, if I was publishing this book now, it would have a more nuanced exploration of race in it. Mm -hmm. And, and you, uh, I mean, there are a few, um, folks in the book that you talk about, uh, that are important for the, consideration of race and charismatic Christianity. If you were to write a second book that just dealt with that, who would you put as some of the central figures for our reconceptualization of race and charismatic Christianity? What a great question. Well, I'm fascinated by, um, I'm currently fascinated by this gentleman named Bishop Carlton Pearson. Mm-hmm. And he was still, he still has an active and thriving church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, he is African-American and he um, had one of the largest churches in Oklahoma for a long time. He comes out of Oral Roberts University, which, yeah, (laughs) in other places I've said that he was from Brigham Young University, so this gives me a chance to publicly correct that. <laughs> I know what you to argue. Oral Roberts University, he was on the Coleman Show, um, and he goes on to have this super successful from the perspective of numbers and influence. Mm-hmm. But then he leaves, he becomes a universalist. <laughs> then from universalism, and that causes a huge uproar, and then from universalism, he moves to new thought, which is um, mind cure, somewhat similar to what we see in um, Marianne Williamson a little bit. Um, power positive thinking. It's close to it's close to, but not quite prosperity gospel. Um, and that's where he is now. And so he's a really interesting figure to kind of access this really another whole world that's happening in the late 20th century and early 20th, 21st century in the African-American charismatic world. Mm. Um, And I don't know that you, I don't even know that you would use the word charismatic if you're talking about African-American Christianity, because there, there's a a, a continued connection with Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would all be, that would all be. That's an interesting point. Uh, You know, some, I have a lot of um, love for those in in religious studies that use this term classification matters. And, uh, you know, when we're doing historical analyses over 
um, different groups. Sometimes, you know, we want to take our terms and, and lay them over these groups because they sort of fit a frame that we grew up with. And, oh. um, and you do a good job of navigating that, which I, again, I'm, I, I just, I really appreciated that. But, okay. you know, it's this idea that we should put this, this, this politic of identity um, at the fore of our analysis without just assuming, you know, these folks are charismatic, these folks are evangelical, these folks are this, uh, you know, those classifications, whether they're used for oneself or for another, they operate and they materialize in the way that, um, you know, the, the way that we move people around uh, in these mm-hmm. classifications, it, it really does matter. And so, you know, it's important to stop and go, well, just because these two things look alike doesn't mean that they had the same standing. Mm-hmm. And that, so that's why, you know, part of the reason why I like gentrification as an analytic term and part of the reason why, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it, it's important to say, you know, there were some people who were uh, in a social position that they could have things that were, uh, you know, based on emotion or wonder yeah. or whatever. And they were able to get away with it because they had other social power that allowed them to do so. When, mm-hmm. you know, a strong comparative project might say, hey, these are actually very similar in a lot of ways, but they were able to repackage it in a way that they could benefit socially from it. And, you know, the caution to not conflate groups because there are some, uh, you know, similar characteristics is super, super important. And, uh, you know, I, I really do hope that your next book does deal with this idea of who was authorized to yeah. speak and, and to, to, to have these miraculous uh, uh, demonstrations, you know, if you will, and who was not based on, you know, these categories of race or based on identifications with certain um, denominational movements or, you know. Um, well, I think to pick up with what you're saying, and I think, uh, wonder don't you think i wonder too if that we have that gender gets going here because within pentecostalism there's definitely the idea that oh well it's okay for women to preach and teach when they're underneath the influence of the holy spirit Mm -hmm. um, because that that gives them an authority that doesn't come from themselves yes yeah cool men uses the okay use let's not say that let's say that Coleman oh I don't know maybe she does use it <laughs> no she employs it I, I think you're right employs there's it. yeah there's there's okay. a long history of um <laughs> so uh, a communication scholar William Benoit has these typologies of uh image restoration and and it's it's this idea that you know when our image is attacked we have these strategies and he has these okay and so I want to, you know, there's, there's like shifting the blame, right? You know, it's like when somebody starts coming at you, you shift the blame to somebody else. And then, you know, I, I couldn't help but thinking like there is this historical pattern of women who've shifted the blame to God. So to say, Absolutely. Act, you know, for, uh, for acting authoritatively within, you know, church or, you know, and again, you know, the, the, the religious and political are never actually separate. And, and, you know, that's something that we should always consider, but it's a very common rhetorical 
uh, approach to say, well, it's not actually me. If you have a problem with this, you need to talk to God sort of thing, you know? Um, That's it. Very good. Very good. Direct <laughs> quote of Catherine Coleman. Yeah. yeah. If you have a problem with me, you talk to God. He's the one who called me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is That's fascinating because, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but the, the things that are surrounding these developments, you know, social developments and the way that people are understanding uh, you know, the shifting in theological neighborhoods, as you, mm -hmm. I, I love that term. I'm going to use that term now. Uh, right. <laughs> it, it, it seems to have provided for that, but she definitely was pulling on this tradition. And I, you know, whether people would, you know, tie her to somebody like uh, Hildegard von Bingen or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, come up with, you know, Amy Simple McPherson, you know, and, and, and of course that, co uh, McPherson comes into the book um, mm -hmm. in some really neat ways. But I do think there's a pattern there that given some of the larger discursive patterns in the multitude of Christianities, it works. Mm -hmm. And it works really powerfully given how she used media and these developments in larger philosophies of, you know, like folk social theory or, you know, you know whatever. Um, so sorry, I went off on a little train there. No, no. I, I just, I really enjoyed this part of the book that, that for me was, um, uh, just a real pleasure to, to, to read through that and to think through these ideas of how ideas of gender are negotiated, not just in the moment, but in patterns of yeah. you know, history. And so. I, that was really neat. So I, um, I kind of took the took no, 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 no. I love it, and it 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 delights me that you and maybe other people will find that part where I where I spend time talking about um, self negation as a tool, and um, she says repeatedly, "Take nothing and use it." Um, she says. Um, I'm sure that God had chosen somebody else for this job. I'm sure I'm the second or third choice, but that person didn't say yes. And I was just naive to accept this. Um, and for me, it was as I was reading her and then I also spent, I watched 450 half hour episodes of, um, I believe in miracles. Maybe I didn't read, maybe 400. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. Maybe I didn't. Maybe the last 50, I was like, I cannot do this. <laughs> I've watched 400. But watching her, I was simultaneously amazed at her. I was like, man, she's good. The way she is just taking this, her power and her influence that was very, um, I don't know if the word contested or that wasn't accepted in the 60s and the 70s socially or culturally as a as a woman as a female leader mm -hmm. then certainly not as a female religious leader within what were and still are more conservative understandings of christianity with conservative understandings of the role of women mm -hmm. and so she's using she's using the power of the or employing the power of the holy spirit and the holy spirit call holy spirit's call on her to access the influence that she needs. She's also accessing um, this Pentecostal and also within evangelicalism, 
em- emphasis on, like, like you said just now, it works. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant Wacker talks about this, the pragmatic as- aspect of Pentecostalism, that the best way to gain authority and respect within the, that kind of religious tradition, and, and many others as well, but in particular this kind, but a very pragmatic understanding of things, is she had, she packed out the Shrine Auditorium in LA every month. And that's, I want to say, is it 7,000? 5,000? I mean, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And there, she's turning people away. So she's also like, hey, you know, this works. It, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm in the will of God. I'm apparently doing what God wants me to do because look at the response that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. But she's also negating herself. Mm-hmm. And so she's this savvy, interesting woman who I also felt sad for like, cause she does live, she talks about living a pretty lonely life. Mm-hmm. And, um, after she has a, um, very controversial divorce early on in her life, there's never any hint that, that I found anywhere that she has another relationship. Um, you know, maybe she did, but we don't, we don't see it. It was not, she doesn't marry again. Um, she, and doesn't, not that that's necessary to, to be happy, but she doesn't seem, but I don't know, in the 60s for a woman, it might have been <laughs> considered necessary, but she doesn't have, she doesn't seem to have um, another romantic interest. So mm-hmm. she's this kind of powerful, but sad, sad's not what I, I don't want to feel sorry for her, but I just want to acknowledge that that negating of herself had its took its toll yeah 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 i i think there is with with any public figure they become i don't want to say like owned by the public or public property or but it 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 reminds me of when politicians say oh well i'm not owned by anybody because i have all this money and i can't help but think like but you're sort of owned by capitalism you're sort of owned by the industry that you're tied to you know, you have your your position thrives on holding that position. You can't just up and say, "Well, I'm not going to do this anymore." You have to navigate, continually navigate this power that you that you now acquired. And you know, and part of that was in order for her to go forward with her ministry and with her very unique position, uh, she had to make sacrifices. And, uh, it, it, and, and again, not to say that you need to have those things to be happy, but had she pursued those things, you know, who knows how folks would have reacted to her uh, as a public figure. Or well, she didn't you know, have, I don't think she had the choice necessarily, you know, like we're, we're wanting to be very careful to say that, that, that there are all kinds of ways of being happy in life. But I do think, that you get to, for, for her, I don't know that she felt that she could choose to marry again or that she could choose to have a kid. And this is, this may be weird. I don't know. She reminded me of the representations I've seen of Elizabeth the first, who basically in order to gain, to keep a hold of her power has to become the Virgin queen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, Elizabeth apparently had lovers and, and, you know, that was much more of a, of a political move. It, it seems to me that Coleman really does live, live this life committed to her ministry. 
And she even talks about, she says that when, when she decides that she has to leave her husband, that she has this visionary experience. And she says that on that day, Catherine Coleman died. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of before divorce and visionary moment with God. And after that in her life, and really to a certain extent, Catherine Coleman, the kind of frisky, full-blooded American woman dies and she is to, in a sense, reborn rhetorically in her imagery um, and in her life as this handmaid of God, which is a term that any simple person also uses a handmaid of God. Now she's still flirty and she obviously enjoys being around men. When you watch her with her men's chorus, she has a great fun with them and they obviously love her. But yeah, that's a whole aspect of her that, that was very interesting for me. Yeah. I, you know, you bring that up in the book that, you know, there is this like social baptism into grandmother figurehood Mm. that you, you touch on that does work rhetorically, I think. And that, is something that does give her a particular agency, but she had to, like, as you said, she had to. At what cost? At what, at what cost? And, you know, how do people generally envision that grandmotherly figure? Do they, you know, and of course it's by no means monolithic, but I would say, you know, hegemonically, especially in, you know, thinking the sixties, seventies, we don't see the hip dating grandmother, you know, in, yeah. in, in that time, I think, at least not hegemonically. And so that's something to consider, I think, as far as her image, you know, as you talk about historically or, you know, like a rhetorical, uh, a rhetoric of identification with how mm-hmm. people understood. Um, and I am actually really surprised that you haven't studied rhetoric because <laughs> I, I can't recommend the book enough for people who study religion and rhetoric because there's so much there to build off of and to understand and, and it, to, to bring it to today, I can't help but think of connections to a figure like uh, in the Southern Baptist convention, uh, Beth Moore. Okay. She is fascinating to me because, you know, right now, you know, and how serious people are taking it is, you know, of, of debate. But at one point people are saying, well, you know, they're talking about the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention and Beth Moore's name comes up. And anybody who studies the Southern Baptist Convention or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention knows how fascinating and, and, and maybe to an extent shocking that is. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, but if you look at Beth Moore's rise to, frame, to, to fame, that's built on media as well. And it's yeah. built on navigating these structures of expectation and uh you know you know sort of playing the game and then she gets so much fame that the group that surrounds her sort of has to go well what do we do with this you know yeah. we can reject it out of hand because she has this huge following we have to we have it's to working. and you know of course there are plenty of people who are who say pretty you know terrible things about her and how women should be in ministry and you know, right. you know so on and so forth but yet here we are we have this incredibly powerful woman in the southern baptist convention and you know again the 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 parallels in media usage you know for beth moore it's now you know it's podcasts it's yeah. it's social media um you know folks who studied people like mark driscoll 
uh, you know, to, to use a different um, uh, example, you know, they, they had to pay attention to uh, this integration of media and gender and social expectations. And, yeah. you know, that, that reminded me of that. Yeah, that just, and I think for me, I, I, I have similar frustrations with Catherine Coleman and Beth Moore, who I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that Catherine Coleman is an influential figure that basically because she exists, she existed, we had people like Beth Moore. I wasn't ready to make that kind of sweeping a statement about Coleman's um, influence, interestingly enough. And it was my readers who, who came back and said, why are you not talking about her influence? Because I spent a lot of time talking about why she's been forgotten by a lot of people, not by everybody, but by a lot of people. And then I had readers come back around and say, okay, well, we understand that she's been forgotten by a certain portion of society and a certain portion of the Christian world in America. But there are other people who look to her and other people who I think other women who have, who you can, you can definitely trace, if not a direct historical line, you know, that maybe they didn't grow up watching Coleman, but her, well, everything we've been talking about mm -hmm. definitely provided a space for them. And so I've actually had to kind of come to a, a, a reckoning with that. And I think part of it is because Coleman frustrated me and Beth Moore frustrates me as mm -hmm. a, as a person who believes in the, the absolute equality of men and women. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm an ordained minister myself in the Christian church, disciples of Christ. And I've served as a, as a minister in the church. Um, Coleman regularly would talk about in, when we get into about the seventies, she would have, um, Oh, Pat Boone's wife. And I'm not going to be able to remember her. Mm -hmm. Came on to the show and they did a whole talk about women's lib and Coleman was laughing and saying, you know, I'm not a women's liberer. And I think it'd be nice to be married and have a man. Oh, I, this, I love this quote. She said, I think it would be nice every now and then that sometimes to think that it would be nice to be married and have a man boss me around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then she says, now it wouldn't last. <laughs> but it would be nice every now and then. And so she's, she doesn't take her power, her platform, literally her platform and use it to support the women who, who are advocating more and more for ordination and power within the more mainline churches and, and, and they're contemporaneous. Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, which I think speaks to the caution that we need to have as historians to the expectations that we have. Yeah. You know, that, that we, without maybe confronting it initially, will have certain ideas of a woman in power equals progressive or liberal or, you know, all these really problematic terms. But, yeah. you know, it, she, I was really struck by that in the book that she really does, <laughs> you know, she sort of, feeds the patriarchy with one hand and then starves it with the other in, in the sense that she goes against the idea that women can't have public agency in, in the church and so on and so forth. But then yeah. on the other hand yeah. goes, well, but I don't go this far to say that I support these projects in women's liberation. And, and that's where, you know, the, the colors of history refract a little bit here, mm -hmm. that, that it's important to see her as a historical figure. Yeah. Not 
a caricature and not, you know, you can't just take a term and apply it to her and then we all, you know, we understand what's going on. It really takes some wrestling to understand how it is that, again, going back to these things that seem to be paradoxical, or they seem to be contradictory or actually just, it's just, it takes a little more work for us to, to check our own assumptions at the door mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. really historicize the, the figures that we study. Uh, you know, I, I've, I had a similar development when I started studying John Muir. Mm-hmm. You know, going to the table with a lot of baggage and assumptions and, and, you know, coming out on the other end with a picture that was by no means simple. And, um, you know, you, you just can't, you sort of have to die to yourself in a certain way. And of course well, that never really actually happens, right? We're always, yeah, but. You know, but we do have to be very cautious about you can serve uh, somebody else's best interests and not your own when you are actually trying to get more agency for yourself or mm-hmm. which that might be a assumptive of, you know, assuming that, you know, Coleman was actually trying to get agency for herself. Um, I, you know, I want to be cautious to not be too, you know, well, she said this, but really what she was doing was trying to, you know, gain something for herself. You know, she very well could have been, she could have believed that she was, trying to serve God and, you know, and serve this larger structure. I I think, you know, we're more complex than simple ideas of motivation can, can, you know, can offer us. That makes me think of a a couple of things, if I may. The first, just to kind of, just going to add on to this conversation, she, yeah, she would, she would drive me crazy. And then also, which you're saying, it it makes her so fascinating. to, to watch her say, oh, she does things like she says, um, let me tell you today, she's at some women's conference. Let me tell you today that, um, that I believe that we are all to follow God, but we are all also to be ladies. Mm-hmm. Like, pause the videotape. You know, I was like, okay, what do you, what do you, what do you mean by what's, what is a lady? And so I would sit there and then, but then, she turns around and she goes to Vietnam. She establishes all kinds of churches in Vietnam. She's basically acting as a de facto minister or pastor of two congregations, one in Pittsburgh, one in Stanford, Ohio. She's running a multi, she's running a million dollar foundation. You know, and she's, she's super in control of her um, miracle services. I mean, this, this isn't being run by somebody else. She's there. She's heading it up. She's super in control of her TV shows. But then she turns around and, like we're saying, says, well, it's okay for me because God has picked me and I'm unique. I'm, I am, this isn't, I'm not a role model. Now, if God wants to choose you and raise you up and give you a ministry like this, God can. But, and I'm putting words in her mouth. These aren't direct quotes in any way she performed. But I am I've been called by God and I don't expect that when I die that someone else is going to come along and, and be another me. So she would, that kind of stuff is what made her really interesting, but also kind of just like, ah, so frustrating to a certain extent to kind of figure out, like you're saying, how much did she know? How much is she manipulating this? How much is it just her kind of Midwestern, this is the way I think, and here it is. And, and she would end sentences a lot of times. She would say, she'd say her whatever, and then she'd say, and it's just like that. 
Okie doke. <laughs> Conversation's <laughs> over. And it's just like that. And my, and I knew when I took, when I talked about these kinds of things, that this was going to be a problem for a certain part of the audience that would be attracted to this book because she is, while she's forgotten by a lot of people, she is still the anointed one of God by a pretty considerable group of people, people who really see her as this miracle working um, healer who needs to be respected. It's more than respected. You, you don't want to in any way make them, you don't want to talk about the bad stuff to put it in kind of straight ahead language mm -hmm. to the extent that I, the, the research I did at the Billy Graham center at Wheaton college, none of that stuff is available because you have to get permission from the Catherine Kuhlman foundation. And there's one person <clears throat> uh, still left alive mm -hmm. who has the ability to give that permission and they are extraordinarily quote unquote protective of her, yes. which I think is keeping her from, from people knowing about her. So I, I could make reference to the research I did, but mm -hmm. oh my gosh, there are videos and pictures and all kinds of things that I wish people could see because the main thing people know about Catherine Coleman is when you Google her, you get these crazy images of this frizzy hair, redheaded woman who looks like she's about to snap in two because she's so frail and she's in this long flowing white gown with these, you know, kind of crazy eyes. Well, that's at the very end of her life in one worship service. And that's what most people know about her. And she's so much more than that. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that archivals, or that, that archives are a form of myth-making and how we yeah. use archives and create archives really yeah. shapes a type of myth-making. Uh, you know, I think anybody who's done a type of historic, you know, uh, like a, biography is is yeah. pretty aware of that that you know archives are never just this repository repository or you know like metaphysical event that just pops up out of nowhere and it's completely yeah. closed and it has no politics behind how it's it's come to be or how it's developing um and and on that note so you and i have talked about this before but the 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 archives in the billy graham center are at kind of a pivotal point right now. Uh, you know, could you dance with that a little bit and 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 talk about how that's developing and and what that could possibly mean for studies of Catherine Kuhlman and what we call charismatic Christianity and what we call evangelicalism. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I don't know that much. What I do know is that the, the kind of the last I heard was that the Billy Graham archives mm -hmm. are going to be moved to his, is it, his, do you know this, where they're going to be moved? I can't remember. It's, yeah, so there is, if I understand it correctly, Franklin Graham is wanting to acquire the, the, the resources there. Yeah. Um, and that is concerning to a lot of historians because it could mean that scholars who are critical could be cut off from those resources. Right. And again, you know, going back to sort of the gatekeepers and the, the, the myth-making mm -hmm. dynamics to, to archives, 
that could, you know, potentially, and, and how much of, uh, you know, Kuhlman's materials are owned by the Billy Graham Center, or, and if that would fall under the ownership of Franklin Graham and... That's what uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not 100% certain on that, but, but that in and of itself is a fascinating... Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's part of Kuhlman's legacy. I come back to it's not just about Kuhlman and you know and so that's why like I like to draw a parallel between Kuhlman and people like Beth Moore. That's really interesting I don't know that I I don't know that I've talked about that enough because I that connection with yeah Beth Moore's ability to promote complementarianism mm-hmm. which I understand she still is doing this idea that you, you're complementary in gender roles but there's still the idea that the 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 husband is head of the household. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Am I doing right by complementarianism? Um, yeah. So so essentially, you know, men and women are you know maybe equal, but they have different roles. And you there know, we go. going on, you know, the pastoral epistles that you know women have an important part in the church. It's just not a pulpit. And yeah. um, you know, there's actually a significant population of public figures, female public figures who support those statements. And there's, uh, you know, fascinating dynamics to that uh, sort of phenomenon. But again, you know, I I can't help but like studying Coleman is not important just for studying Coleman. It's important for our understanding of how people negotiate agency through media and, 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 and navigate things that seem to be paradoxical. And you know, and maybe I don't want that to be true. <laughs> and that's why, you know, talking about our biases, mm. and that's why I didn't make the connections with Beth Moore, and I didn't say originally that, oh, well, look at her inheritance and look at her legacy. I spent most of my time beating up on Benny Hinn because mm-hmm. he makes me so angry <laughs> at how he's co-opted her legacy. But, you know, that's, we can, we can mm. talk about that some other time. But I don't want it to still be the case that, women in leadership in Christianity or in religion in America are having that they're still doing this kind of self-negation in order to achieve um, what they feel like is, is their God ordained role. But of course that's still going on. Of course that's the truth. And Mm -hmm. just by being irritated by it, that doesn't help much. So I need to, I need to, own that aspect of Coleman and, um, and use it to talk about it more often. Yeah. I think at one point we talked about, you know, the, the, the more, the more we study history, the less heroes we have. That's just part of being honest about, you know, what, what some people call the human conditions, you know, or the human condition. And, um, of course there's no such thing as a human condition, but it's, you know, how we make sense of the future is how we make, you know, it's based on how we've made sense of the past in many ways. And so it's important for us to be able to uh, process what we know of the people who've come before us and, and built the ground beneath us, so to say. And I, she became, she became more heroic to me if, if by heroic is someone I admire and someone who I feel like has, has accomplished something extraordinary. The more I got to know about her and as much as you can with this super mediated figure, we don't have diaries. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have letters. You know, all, what we have in Coleman are her, her shows, her ghost written books, um, her, her 
taped shows. And so for me, not allowing her to be who she was in her fullness, truncates the, the chance to have a relationship with this historical figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hope what I wanted to do in, in the book was to have a good balance between look at this, look at this amazing woman and all that she overcomes. And she's just a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. And she, she did change people's lives, whether you agree with the idea of divine healing, or you think that what it is, cosmetic or um, whatever is happening. She had an, a, she had an impact on the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people mm-hmm. um, for better, or for worse. I think some for better. So yeah, to, to me that she just survived some of the things that happened that her career made it and she kept going. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty heroic. What would you hope for, for future historians and anthropologists of charismatic Christianity and Catherine Kuhlman, what do you want them to pick up and go forward with after having written the book? I, it humbles me to, to even think that I have something to say to that. I, I guess I hope that, that people who read the book want to know more about this, about this way of being Christian that has been around for a long time, but often is kind of considered, um, like I've, like I've said, fringe, I've said some of this fringe and actually what's coming to me is that you've done me the favor of introducing me to a really excellent book that I'm reading right now on the Vineyard Christian Fellowship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, um, I think that is the actual inheritor in many ways of Catherine Coleman's approach to divine healing and to living within the gifts of the Holy spirit. And so, you know, John Wimber and the vineyard and this kind of laid back California style, groovy, um, charismatic Christianity and kind of the rise of that. And then it, it, it's, it, it's, it's aspects. And so I think if I was going to say very specifically where I might think that there would be interest to go, that would be one place. Charismatic Christianity has become in many ways a more global phenomenon. And I am not, I don't have as much facility with global Pentecostalism and global charismatic Christianity as I should, Mm -hmm. because that is really where um, a lot of the growth is happening now. Um, Central and South America, Africa, there's a, 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 a large, um, there's been a shift away from divine healing as the central moment in charismatic Christianity, charismatic services or the, the large gatherings and exorcism. And, and I think it's probably the case that what's happening there is that you have this strong emphasis on divine healing, which is really the centerpiece of Catherine Coleman's worship services that the, and David Evan Harrell talks about this, about all divine healers that, you have at the center point of the charismatic service that moment when the healings begin. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the moment where 
your hair stands up on end and, and you're taking your breath because it's like when, when Coleman points up to the upper, you know, upper corner and says someone in the balcony is being healed of emphysema, stand up and claim your healing. It's like, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, buckle up. This is when things are going to get interesting. And that maybe I think that probably what's happening is that in, in the global South and, and as this, as this way of being Christian grows, you have that intersect with the idea that, that illness um, and struggle comes from the demonic. Mm-hmm. So we can't just call out the healing. We have to also call out what's making the illness and we have to address the, the demonic roots of, of that, of that illness. If it gets people to thinking if, if this book and studying charismatic, Christ, charismatic Christianity and it's particularly its emphasis on the prophetic or on, on prophecy, not, I think those are different mm-hmm. on prophecy and um, healing and divine healing and um, words of knowledge from the Holy spirit about, about, other people and, and their sin or their illness, if it gets them thinking about those types of things, and like you're saying, it problematizes the way that they look at these ways of being Christian, mm-hmm. and it makes them realize, just like people did in the 1960s when they started watching I Believe in Miracles, oh my gosh, that person looks just like me. Mm-hmm. Well, that, they're not that different from me. Um, maybe it's going to gentrify some people's ideas of what it means to be a person who's interested in charismatic Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. that you can, you can study this and think about this um, seriously and respectfully, as you were saying, but at the same time, recognize that there's all kinds of wonderful complexity. There's all kinds of politics and manipulation and um, innocence and guilt and, ah, the whole human condition. That's what I want. I want to think about the whole human condition. Amy, thank you very much for chatting with me today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dr. Amy Artman featuring guest host Dan Jones. You can follow Dr. Artman's work on Twitter at twitter.com slash amyartman3. You can find Artman's book, The Miracle Lady, Catherine Kuhlman, and the Transformation of Charismatic Christianity, out now from Eardsman's Press. All music on classical ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. You can follow Classical Ideas on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas or at Patreon.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.